Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Sarah Salem. Sarah is assistant professor in sociology at the LSE, the London School of Economics. She works on political sociology, post-colonial studies, Marxist theory, and global histories of empire. She's recently published articles on Angela Davis in Egypt, and uh, she's done a lot of work on Fanon, Egypt's post-colonial state and she's got a very exciting new book coming out with Cambridge entitled Anti-Colonial Afterlives in Egypt The Politics of Hegemony. Sarah thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah thank you for having me. It's a pleasure I'm really looking forward to to talking with you about all of this stuff and um, after having Basil Saluk on earlier and talking about Gramsci with him I'm, I'm curious to to take Gramsci out of Lebanon and see what lessons we can um, we can learn from Gramsci in your case. So I think there's a lot to cover but as always Sarah can I ask what got you interested in in the Middle East in Egypt and and in this sort of post-colonial, Gramscian um, set of theoretical approaches, please? That's a good question. I think, I I mean, my broad interest is, has always been in anti-colonialism and post-colonialism. Uh, I think that comes a lot out of my own background, so being Egyptian, but I, growing up in Zambia, I think that always got me really interested in this question of pan-Africanism, pan-Arabism, <laughs> the types of connections and solidarities that existed um, between these two countries that I kind of was constantly seeing as I was growing up. And it really struck me that often people in Zambia would reference Egypt through Nasser as sort of this figure that was very important to this broad kind of memory of African anti-colonialism. Mm. And I think later on that got me really interested in the this question of anti-colonial solidarity, but also specifically the Nasser's project itself. And I think the more work that I did on Egypt and the broader Middle East and North Africa, I was really struck by just the fact that despite Nasser was a prominent figure in some ways, um, in other ways we don't have as much work on that period as you might th- expect. Um, we have quite a lot on the colonial era, so especially the early 20th century. We do have a bit more on kind of more recent times, so the 90s and 2000s. But I was struck by this kind of um interesting absence sometimes that emerges in work on Egypt and specifically political economy work. Yeah. So I think it's that kind of combination of um, my own personal trajectory, but also seeing this interesting gap in the literature that got me interested in in that era. Um, I think in terms of the Gramscian angle, I mean, I had a PhD supervisor who loved Gramsci. <laughs> right, so that's okay. actually just that. I mean, that's how it started. But I mean, what's interesting is that the the more I worked with Gramsci, the more I started to think more about what it means to, to use someone like Gramsci in the context of Egypt. So yeah. the work that I've done after the PhD especially has been much more around that question of, is it as simple as saying we can just use Gramsci's work somewhere like Egypt without having to do quite a lot of work transitioning these concepts to a new context as well. And alongside that, I think throughout my PhD, I also found really important points where actually Gramsci's work was just 
not enough and not it didn't speak directly i think to the egyptian context so the more i started to also work with other theorists the more i started to think also about maybe combining gramsci's work or bringing gramsci into a conversation with um, theorists that were more directly interested in anti-colonialism in the post-colonial world so that's sure. how um, Franz Fanon ended up kind of becoming in some ways an even more central figure to the book and to, to my work so in the end I've kind of ended up with this conversation between both of them um, amazing and trying to think through why it's also quite valuable to think alongside different thinkers who bring really different things to a project yeah well i can certainly see the merits of, of trying to do that i do that in my uh in my forthcoming book with uh, a gambin and a rent trying to position the two together and, mm. and to see what adds uh, what can be brought out of that but um enough about me uh, sorry you've you've just said a, a huge amount of stuff that that's provoked a great deal of thought but uh, i wonder before we go into that could i just ask your, um, I mean, you talked about your PhD, but but your undergraduate studies was that were these in in politics? Was it in uh, Middle Eastern studies, or was it more sort of theoretically driven? I mean, I, I'm guess I'm sort of asking, how did you come about these questions? Was it theoretically uh, investigating the cases that you were interested in, or was it more of a an interested in interest in a particular case, in your case, Egypt? and then using the theoretical tools that you gathered along the way to interrogate that? So I actually did my undergraduate in sociology at, okay. at the American University in Cairo. And I think what was really great about that program is that it really took Egypt and Cairo as kind of its center point. And so even though a lot of the classes, as is kind of common, in lots of universities in the global south, unfortunately, still did focus on Western theorists and did talk about sociological theories still in kind of a Eurocentric perspective. Still, like, the focus of discussions and conversations and anecdotes was always Egypt. And I think it was that combination that was really um, amazing to have as an undergrad. I think, essentially, when I started working on my PhD, it was, it was in 2012, so... It was very difficult to ignore, you know, what had just happened yeah, of course. in the region and what had just happened in Egypt. And I think I, the more I thought about it, the more certain questions kind of kept popping up. And to me, that has always driven my work is questions about a particular context, time and place rather than kind of broader theoretical questions that can sometimes be more abstract. So... Mm. And the way I think about someone like Gramsci or even someone like Fanon is actually, can they help us understand these kind of monumental events? And sure. Rather than, can we test these theories or can we um, use kind of context just as a prop for larger theoretical debates? So, yeah, I think like many people, um, post-2011, a lot of research really became interested in, in what was happening, but also interested in what this means for paradigms that had been so stable up until then and yeah, how we could really sure. rethink a lot of work, especially in political science. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I guess I should ask why sociology? Well, so the good thing about um, AUC was that the first year you, you didn't have to pick 
a major so you could you had to do like lots of courses across the school so I actually hadn't chosen one I was thinking about psychology um but then I took an intro to sociology class I think it was called Arab society and I was just hooked I think sociology was really fascinating to me because of its focus on the everyday and I found it a really interesting um discipline in that I, you know, things that you see on a daily basis become the objects of kind of discussion and, and theory. And that really attracted me to, to sociology. Okay, that's, that's good to know. Um, sorry, in your, in your sort of introductory note, your biographical answer, if you will, you talked about uh, decolonial projects and anti-colonial projects. I wonder, can you just, and post-colonialism, obviously, I wonder, can you just uh, offer a brief distinction of how you are understanding those distinct terms, please? Sure. So, to me, anti-colonialism and anti-colonial thinking is basically referring to this moment in the 20th century where much of the world that was colonized began to resist and theorize against colonialism. So it's basically a tradition that I think is really driven by movements. Um, it's a tradition probably that you could play such a broad range of actors from someone like Nasser to someone like Fanon, despite obviously massive differences between yeah. what they thought anti-colonialism was. Um, to me, so I would put someone like Franz Fanon in that tradition. I think he was very much an anti-colonial um, thinker. Post-colonial studies, I think, emerged a little bit later, so it's often kind of dated to the 70s um, with Edward Said's work um, and kind of work around literature, culture, and identity. So to me, I usually distinguish between the two traditions in that sense. I think anti-colonialism came about much earlier, was really driven also by movements coming from the global south and so on. Um, decolo so decoloniality is interesting. I think the way I've often understood it or the way it's been explained to me also by decolonial scholars is that this is also an attempt to think about um, the Americas as part of um, kind of the global south. And I think it is true that post-colonial studies, historically at least, has often tended to focus on Asia and Africa and the Middle East and Latin America, obviously, with this quite significantly different history of empire, sometimes um, gets eclipsed. So I think decoloniality is really comes from that geographical location, but of course has lots of important parallels, I would say, with um, post-colonial theory. But yeah, of course, that's different than decolonization as kind of this moment. So that happened in Egypt, for example, in the 1950s. Hmm. I think there's there's some interesting points of of analytical tension and analytical merit in in those. I mean, I was oh, in my doing my preparation for this this podcast. I was reading your your blog, Sarah, and something struck me in the post about your book, which we'll get onto in a minute. But something struck me about this um, this tension between decolonization and anti-colonialism, and and you 
you and I quote, uh, you found yourself charting an uneasy pathway from these two positions because anti-colonial state-led projects were both liberation uh, movements and anti-democratic. And it, it struck me that that's, that's a really interesting tension that, that, to me, not really having reflected on these questions, was quite provocative. So uh, can you just tell us a bit about that? Before we go into the book, I think it might just be useful just to have a bit of this intellectual scaffolding before we get yes, into the book. Of so I think that that tension was a very important one to the book, but also one that I really only realized was there towards the end, because I often found Nasserism actually a very difficult subject to write about. It's such a charged era, especially in Egypt and for Egyptians. It really is, you know, quite heavy in what it brings up for, for different people. Mm. And to me, I also... The more research I did on Nasserism, the more it became clear that although we associated with Nasser as kind of this project that was built around him, you know, anti, the anti-colonial project in Egypt was much bigger. Uh, despite this, uh, what we see over the 50s and 60s is that many of the radical energies that were part of Egyptian anti-colonialism, so from workers' movements to feminist movements, um, nationalist movements, all of these different energies that fed into the anti-colonial project um, were slowly either co-opted into the Nasserist project or um, excluded from it or repressed in, in violent ways. So to me, it was important to make this distinction that this moment of decolonization, it's difficult to ignore its liberatory effects. So, of course, it did bring about this independent state. And I do think there were aspects of Nasserism that had um, important ramifications for parts of Egyptian society that we shouldn't downplay either. Um, but at the same time, I think it is important to also see it as a moment that actually de-radicalized many of the radical energies that built Egypt's anti-colonial kind of life world. Yeah. Um, and that this is a contradiction that I think exists in many um, decolonizing societies at this moment. And it's kind of also something that we continue to to deal with today, I would, I would argue. Yeah, I'm thinking of a number of, of contemporary parallels that are, are probably for another time and another place, but but I think it, it continues to resonate that that interesting tension. But uh, Sarah, we've we've talked a bit about sort of the the periphery and the, the theoretical work behind the book, but why don't you tell us a bit about about what it is that you're trying to do in it and and the main sort of thrust of the argument, please. Okay. So, like I said, I mean, my interest increasingly became this question of Nasserism as an era that is, is obviously quite significant to modern Egypt and yet one that we don't have as much work on. So, in trying to kind of explore Nasserism as a political project, I began to think with Gramsci's concept of hegemony and particularly his ideas behind hegemony around how, you know, consent and coercion have to exist in, in a dialectic with one another, that we, we need to take seriously both ideological and material foundations of political projects, and also his concept of the historical bloc, which is essentially um, 
that a ruling class can never rule by itself. It has to kind of universalize its project to quite a few other groups in society, including subaltern groups, to kind of yeah. oversimplify a bit. So to me, the argument that I make in the book is one that I think Nasserism represents actually an instance of hegemony, um, that it was a hegemonic project. We do see an interesting interplay between consent and coercion. So the book also talks a little bit about how Nasserism created consent, uh, what this meant for you know the coercion that coexisted under Nasserism as well. And I also argue that actually Nasserism did create a particular historical block that included subaltern forces, um, at least for a, a certain amount of time. Um, and the second connected argument that I make to that is the decline of the Nasserist um, hegemonic project actually continues for quite a long time. And that what we see in the 70s with the turn to neoliberalism and then again in the 1990s with its intensification is that both of those ruling classes actually failed to create anything similar to a hegemonic project. And so 2011, I think in many ways, was a clear kind of symptom of this downward spiral, um, I would argue. So I try to connect 2011 to 1952 by thinking about hegemony and then its afterlife, so a period that came after the decline of Nasserist hegemony. Fantastic. I was going to ask you, actually, what was the, the time period that you were looking at? But but that that's really interesting that you trace it back to 52, but then, then also look at how this weaves into the... Uh, I guess, the breakout of the uprisings in 2011. Yeah, exactly. I mean, initially, like I mentioned, in 2012, when I started my PhD, of course, it was the uprising of 2011 that was very interesting as well. And what was what really struck me, actually, about 2011 um, and the years that preceded it was precisely that there was an absolute kind of lack of an attempt by the state or elites to even put on any type of performance of mm. democracy anymore or legitimacy. And that really struck me again because, you know, Nasserism, again, uh, was very kind of put a lot of energy into that. So whether it was the Arab Socialist Union or education or all of these different spheres, there was an attempt to create a project that was seen as popular. And it was this difference that started, kind of got me thinking about, well, what happened to that kind of attempt to create consent? And what does that mean for coercion? So, of course, 2011 was largely a response to this idea of increasing police brutality and coercion as well. So... Yeah, it's that interplay, I think, between the consent and coercion that started to connect these two eras um, in my mind and start to think about what has happened to various political projects in modern Egypt and are there ways that we can kind of think about them mm. as continuous rather than as each transition marking its own kind of time period. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Rather than trying to to trace moments of of causation and cause and effect, perhaps, looking at it as a continuous process, a continuous time period, and perhaps knitting together the different linkages and, and themes that are at play. Definitely. And I think for me, the idea of rupture and continuity has been really central to the book. 
I think it's also quite interesting because using a concept like hegemony, but also using a Marxist framework generally also means that, you know, the eras that we split Egypt into, um, according to sort of Nasser, Sadat, Mubarak, um, actually came a bit undone because the more I traced this emergence of a political, looking for a political project rather than this, you know, sort of electoral transition, the more I started to see that actually the transition transitions were marked much more, um, were marked differently. So the beginning of this neoliberal era that we often mark with, you know, 1974 and Sadat, I, I argue in the book actually began in the late 1960s under Nasser. Um, that's when we see the beginning of actually of a new political project. Um, but more importantly, uh, Hosni Mubarak becoming president actually doesn't mark a huge transition um, in according to sort of the way I've laid it out. I think that that new political project actually comes in the mid-1990s, so halfway through his presidency. We start to see a new ruling class forming, um, again, around his son and around kind of these um, businessmen um, elite that's kind of been forming over the last few decades. So that's where I mark a rupture, actually, and a new political project, very much defined by financial capital, um, Gulf investments, and so on. Right. Um, whereas, actually, the rise of Hosni Mubarak himself was very much conti- continuous with um, Infidah and that, mm-hmm. that political project. So, yeah, it was actually quite interesting as well to think about rupture through this the lens of a political project um, yeah. rather than kind of these individual leaders. So can you say a little bit about those those markers then? I mean, you talked about the emergence of, of the sort of the investment of Gulf capital, but, but what about the earlier ruptures and the markers that signify those ruptures? Can you say a little bit about that? In terms of the economic shift? Yeah. Yeah. So to me, I mean, economically, I think what underpins... The Nasser's project is very much this form, I mean, what, what he called Arab socialism, but w- what essentially was kind of a mix between um, social welfareist policies on the one hand, but still a very state-controlled form of capitalist development on the other. I think a, a big rupture does happen, of course, in the late 60s. I mean, this is when Nasser himself and many sort of the men around him start to say, you know, we've hit a balance of uh, payments deficit. There is... Because, and I kind of go into more detail around this in the book, but I mean, there is a problem when um, global capitalism is still operating in very much the same way, and you have these states trying to resist it. Um, it will, obviously, at some point, it does come to this crisis point. So many of, many of the men around him start saying, actually, you know, we're coming up to this point where we need to do something differently. And this is when you start to see also... Actually, many of the elites and, and, and investors that were very prominent before independence, um, those families start to come up again. And so the late 60s, there is this new transition to obviously an open market um, or what you know some people would refer to as neoliberalism. But of yeah. course, at that moment, it was essentially a break with the Soviets, a turn towards the U.S. and um, this idea that we need to open Egypt up to foreign investment, foreign goods, and so on. Mm. I think that that political, that ruling class that kind of emerges around Sadat 
still was quite conscious of, you know, this dialectic I keep mentioning of consent and coercion. And I think we can see that, for example, from the 1977 bread riots that happened in Egypt, where um, bread subsidies were removed. And, you know, there was this massive resistance to that. And then they were kind of taken back. So I think there was actually still quite some attention being paid to this question of, yes, we might want to privatize and liberalize at a certain pace, but we need to think about the political consequences of that. So there's, and then the IMF itself actually kept kind of saying, you know, you need to do this faster. This is not, you know, the way you're, you're privatizing is just not quick enough and so on. Um, and I think that is the rupture that happens in the mid-1990s. Um, so it's not, so what I argue in the book is that it's not a shift away from neoliberalism, but it's actually an acceleration of it. Right. And so suddenly in the late 90s and early 2000s, you see, you know, hundreds of company, public sector companies being privatized in a few years. Um, you see massive changes suddenly happening. And these were changes that were not new ideologically, because of course that was happening since the 70s, but they were, it was the pace and kind of speed with which they were happening that sure. creates this, this rupture. And that rupture, I argue, comes about again, because we can see a new ruling class at this moment. Right. So where does agency fit in all of this then, Sarah? Mm, agency of? Of people. People, yes. So I think what I really like about both the concept of hegemony and of the historical block is that the whole quest for a hegemonic project is essentially around this question of, is this a project that speaks to a population as a whole? And I think during the Nasserist years, the argument that it's hegemonic is really built around that idea that this was a popular project um, in the sense that people were not receiving kind of top-down ideas or top-down ideologies, but they were actually integrating a lot of these ideas into their own lives. But also that Nasserism really built on pre-existing notions of what Egypt should be like after independence and so on. So that chapter on the Nasserism is actually very much built around how do we see this interaction between this new ruling class, but also different subaltern groups, but also the national popular as, you know, an entire category that without that emphasis, um, we wouldn't be able to actually have a hegemonic project. Um, in both the other chapters, so the second, the, the chapter that deals with kind of the neoliberal transition and the chapter that looks at this new financial ruling class. I look at different, actually, segments of society to look at how we can trace um, sort of declining consent, basically. So under Infitah, there's quite a lot on um, especially workers' resistance um, on the bread riots, on the kind of also police riots that happened during those years. So looking at how actually again, even this transition towards, you know, less consent and more coercion doesn't happen. The only way we can see it happening is still by looking at society more broadly, but also at groups that often are very involved in contentious politics. Um, and the final part of the story, I look, I take, I look quite a lot at also the politics of gender 
So um, really interesting kind of analysis of how police brutality and kind of this idea that police brutality now is something that can affect anyone. You know, yeah, it's no of longer kind of political or just targeting political people. Um, and how that kind of has these interesting ramifications around masculinity. But also in that last chapter, quite a lot on, again, workers' agency. And in both that chapter and the chapter in Infitah, I, I do argue that actually workers in many ways did slow down um, a lot of the slow down the pace of neoliberal restructuring in the 70s and 80s. And again, that is what really was shut down um, when we see the emergence of this financial class. Yeah. Um, we suddenly see these massive, um, you know, huge kind of confrontations between workers and the state, um, especially in 2006. So, yeah, I try to constantly kind of think about how searching for hegemony or the absence of hegemony is is much more than kind of looking at the ruling class, but is about thinking about the ruling class in relation to kind of various um, subaltern groups. Yeah. That said, I think when I finish this project, I mean, it is quite difficult, I think, using someone like Gramsci to, or even Fanon to some extent, I think they were broadly very interested in these transitions that were happening at this elite level, right? So how can we understand capitalism by looking at the ruling class? So I did feel towards the end that actually it would be interesting to look a bit more at something like anti-colonialism without that, you know, and think yeah. about well, what, how were other people kind of articulating it? What other futures were people imagining? Um and so on. So that could be maybe a future project. But yeah, I think it is. I mean, to me, it is kind of a weakness of sometimes of um, a Gramscian analysis is that or not not a Gramscian, but a Gramscian analysis of hegemony and the historical bloc is that it is driven also quite prominently by kind of tracing the creation of the historical block from that ruling class perspective. Yeah. Earlier in the conversation, Sarah, you you hinted at some other issues with using Gramsci, and and I think if I if I remember correctly, this was to do with with transporting the Gramscian analysis out of out of Western Europe, if you will, to to the Middle Eastern context. Can you say just a little bit about that, please, and how you how you managed to overcome it? Yes. So, I mean, to give one example of that, I was really interested in. This argument that I, I make around Nasserist hegemony, it seems clear to me that Nasserist hegemony was possible largely through the politics of anti-colonialism. Um, it's very difficult to separate those two moments. I don't think this hegemonic project would have been possible without that anti-colonial transformation and what it meant for this kind of new emerging bloc from the global south, what it meant for kind of control over natural resources. But also, like I said earlier, the fact that anti-colonial politics already predated Nasserism in important ways. And so much yeah. of the ideological work that Nasser needed to have done was already done essentially for them. So that's kind of one way in which I think actually using 
work such as Fanon's work is much more illuminating in trying to understand the centrality of anti-colonialism. Um, and especially his work, for example, around what type of elite emerges in the post-colonial nation, right? And how it's still, you know, the post-colonial nation is still tied to global capital in certain ways that only break by breaking or disrupting that can you really decolonize fully. So those, that type of work, I think, is much more prominent in, 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 in theoretical and yeah, thinkers such as Fanon rather than Gramsci. Um, I think another really interesting way in which uh, I, I thought about hegemony was, of course, also the work by the subaltern school who argued that, you know, there's hegemony cannot exist in a colonial context. And that was really important as well in yeah. juxtaposing kind of Egypt under colonial rule to Egypt post-independence and kind of thinking through what is hegemony in, in, in the colonial world, actually, and what is it built on? Or what? Why can't it? Why can it not exist? But equally, what is it then built on in the post-colonial moment? So that's sort of one example in which I think only using Gramsci's understanding of hegemony and, and the context that produces it um, would miss out on really important um, characteristics of, you know, a case like Egypt. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating. And I, I have one final question, if I may, Sarah, which, which is a nice link. And that is, when can we read it? When can we yes. read this book? <laughs> uh, so the book is out in May. Fantastic. Uh, so that's very exciting. And there is a, um, an event planned as well mid-October at the LSE. So, Fantastic. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, Mabruk, it's wonderful news. I can't wait to read it. And Thank you. Uh, we'll be sure to send around information to all of our listeners about the, the book launch and details as to when it's out. So stay tuned, everyone. But, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. I've, I've learned a lot. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, really, really interesting stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. So thank you so much, Sarah. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.